My favorite passage of The Grapes of Wrath happens about midway through, when Steinbeck shifts attention from the Jodes to a nameless diner on Highway 66. In a concise chapter that's essentially a standalone short story within the novel, he introduces readers to a hardened waitress named May and sullen line cook named Al, whose livelihoods depend on the truckers, moneyed travelers, and impoverished migrants driving west. They serve pie, coffee, and burgers, but most crucially, compassion. And while I'll spare you the plot's details, the scenes and encounters powerfully illustrate that sharing, empathy, and generosity reap not only strength, but rewards. Now more than 80 years since its publication, diners like these remain fundamental to Route 66. And today I invite you to saddle up to the counter with me, as we'll step inside a few whose owners, like May and Al, know these lessons well. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, I have a show I want to tell you about. It's called Famous and Gravy, and it asks questions about quality of life, one dead celebrity at a time. On each episode, hosts Michael and Amit invite you into a conversation about categories like love, friendship, wealth, and meaning. Some Famous and Gravy episodes I've heard have focused on recently departed celebrities like John Prine, Joan Rivers, Muhammad Ali, Gary Shandling, and my favorite, Larry McMurtry. It's a lighthearted ride jam-packed with entertaining trivia and ultimately touches on the big stuff that makes life fulfilling. You can follow Famous and Gravy wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's get back to Route 66. 1,139 miles between Chicago and Los Angeles is the town of Adrian, Texas. About an hour past Amarillo, it might be the flattest place I've ever been. A friend I know who grew up in the Panhandle says the landscape here is like the ocean, vast and perfect from a distance, full of nuance up close. But when I asked Brenda Hammett Bradley to describe her adopted hometown, she's a little more direct. Don't blink. (laughs) Right, Brandon, don't blink. (laughs) Because you'll miss it. (laughs) There's 160 people here, don't blink. It's a a nice little town, honey. All the people here are awesome. I love it here. A blue-eyed 50-something with wispy light brown hair. Brenda grew up in Michigan and tells me racehorses and marriage brought her to Adrian about 25 years ago. We're talking across the Formica table in the Midpoint Cafe, which is aptly named for the mileage sign across the street and looks exactly the way an old diner should. The chairs and booths are covered in red vinyl. A pie case tempts customers near the counter. And the vocals of the Chantels, Platters, and Bobby Lewis drift out of an old jukebox in the corner. Brenda tells me she bought this place after frying an untold number of bologna sandwiches from behind the griddle. About three or four years ago, uh, William Shatner was here. He told me I made him the best bologna sandwich he ever ate. <laughs> but I guess it, it is a big world out there. What keeps you in Adrian? The big world comes to Adrian. <laughs> In 19, we had 84 countries come through, so, yeah, I love this cafe. I, I, you'll never get rid of me. <laughs> They'll never get rid of me, let's put it that way. <laughs> Turns out, this is true of pretty much all the diners I've visited on Route 66. And perhaps no owner knows this better than Don Welch, who sought adventure in the tropics before finding it at the Rock Cafe in Stroud, Oklahoma. I wanted to work for a cruise ship. 
and that was my big goal. Um, in high school, I remember I was a great cross-country and track runner, and I got a scholarship to go to, to university. And I remember telling my cross-country coach, who had worked really hard to get me this scholarship, that I didn't want to go to college. She thought I was crazy. You know, again, we were poor, so she thought that was exactly what I needed. And uh, I, kept, I just told her, I said, I'm going to go work on a cruise ship. Granted, I had never flown on an airplane yet. So to go from a small town in Oklahoma to telling my track coach who knew better that I was going to go work on a cruise ship, that sounded like purity insanity. But, you know, within the year after high school, I was on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. Uh, while I was traveling on the cruise ships, um, I was always surveying where I would want to go, and I was always saving money to open up my own business. Um, my original plan was to go to Costa Rica, it was my favorite country, and a lot of Americans and Canadians and Europeans were going there and opening up businesses. They were encouraging that, and they had grants for you to go there and do that. And so I was in on the ground level of all of that. That was my plan. I was going to go open up a Beatles submarine shop. So it was going to be all Beatles music and, you know, decorated with the Beatles, and I was going to have a submarine as the toppings area for submarine sandwiches, and that's what I was going to do. So the next thing you know, I am getting off of the cruise ship in Miami, headed towards Costa Rica, and I decided at the last minute to come back by and say goodbye to my mom. I'll be in Costa Rica for the next few years. So I came here, and I was rollerblading down Main Street, and this old truck pulled me over and said, uh, hey, your mom told me you wanted to buy some restaurant equipment. So I came into the cafe with that intention of buying all the restaurant equipment. It had been shut down. It was just a dusty, hot mess in here. And the owner wanted to get rid of the building and the equipment. And uh, by the time I left that afternoon, I had rented the building for $200 a month, headed straight to Barnes & Noble in Oklahoma City, to buy a book on how to make a business plan to open a business that I'd already rented. I, uh, went, I still have the book, How to Run a Restaurant. And so from that, I surmised that I needed to sell 10 hamburgers, fries, and Cokes per day. And that's how I opened up the cafe. So I asked the Ed Smalley, the owner, about the sign. And he told me, no way, it will never work again. It's broken forever. The sign's just never going to work. I said, okay. So then he also told me, and you're going to need a new grill. Of all the restaurant equipment in here, you're going to have to get rid of that grill. It's, it's just the worst thing. It's been here since the day we opened. So I thought, okay. So I went to go price grills. Oh, my God, they were $15,000. I was like, I can't replace that grill. So I turned it on. And I started to learn. That's, that's how I learned to cook was on that grill. And the next thing you know, that's what we were using. And what I learned over the next few years was that that grill put flavor on the food items like you would never find anywhere else. It is just the most amazing piece of equipment in this building, and I don't know what I'll do if ever I have to lose her. This was early 1993, and while the Rock Cafe had stood sturdily since Roy Reeves built it stone by stone in the 30s, Don says the locals were skeptical it could ever turn a profit. No one would come in here. And of the very few people that came in here, um, they, they were always telling me they were townspeople, just curious. And so they would 
make sure that I knew that this was a failing business. I also remember not knowing how to cook. Um, I mean, literally, I didn't know how to stir gravy, make gravy, cook a biscuit, anything. I remember dragging people in from outside who would drive by, and they were like, oh, it looks kind of scary, don't really want to go in. So I would go outside, and I was like, if you come in and eat, I will buy your meal if you don't like it. And sometimes they looked terrified of it, you know, like, oh, my God, who is this person? But they would come in and, and buy something. One of those early passerbys was a sign repairman who, having bonded with Don's Great Dane, at no cost grabbed a ladder and, like magic, repaired the supposedly unfixable flasher before leaving town. And with the neon back, things started to pick up. I remember the first time I learned that we were on Route 66. I got a phone call, and it was a group of European tourists, and they were all going to come into the Rock Cafe. There were like 50 of them. And I thought, oh my God, how am I, you know, first I'm rich, Secondly, how am I going to get this done? How am I going to feed 50 people? What is that going to look like? That is the day that I knew I was sitting on a gold mine. And a few weeks later, Michael Wallace caught wind that I was on Route 66. And um, he came down to meet me. And I remember the day like it was yesterday. He's like, you know, honey, if you stay on this road, I'll make you famous. I'll send everyone your way. And I thought, I'm in the money now. You know, I just remember... And it was pretty quickly, you know, February, March, April, May, depression, how am I going to make this work? And then all of a sudden, June, it just busted out. And still to this day, June, July, and August are our busiest months. Michael Wallace made good on that promise, and eight years later, having been hired by Pixar to consult on a little movie they were developing called Cars, asked Don if he could bring the team by for a meal at the cafe. When I, that first night I sat down with um, John Laster, he told me his whole story. And he said, I want to tell you my whole story because I want you to share everything with me. And we did that. Just like old friends sitting at a table and talking. And there were a crew of 14 people, and I remember them just running like bees everywhere. Some were photographers, some were artists, some were voices. They were all his tight group of people that were the creators of these wonderful shows. And then from 2001 to 2005, they came back every three months with someone, someone different, doing some other piece of the puzzle, putting that movie together. Then it went dead silent. From 2005 to 2006, I, we heard nothing from them. And I thought, okay, well, they've, you know, they've done everything they want to do. And then one day, John Laster called and said, hey, I'm going to be sending all the media presents to you. I want you just to talk to everybody, tell them what we did together. So I said, okay, I can do that. And then eventually a package arrived inviting me to the premiere of the movie. And that's where, you know, I, in, I flew to North Carolina, the track. And, and on my way into the movie theater, or not, it wasn't the movie theater. It was, you know, the racetrack, car track. Um, they told me on my way in, John Lasser pulled me aside and said, you're Sally Carrera. And I didn't have five minutes to digest that before all of a sudden we were watching the recreation of the, the race, you know, in actual real cars and, and then the flash of the movie coming up on the screen. And, you know, it was just beside myself. Everything about Sally is, is something that I told them. Um, right down to the, they called me one day, John Laster calls me out, out of the blue one day. He's like, what's your favorite color? And I'm like, I don't have a favorite color. And my daughter was, was, you know, six or seven years old. And, and I said, but my daughter's favorite color is blue, so I really like blue. 
you know, the car is blue. You know, I mean, every single detail in the movie was a story that I told them or something they witnessed or, you know, it's just, I can't even describe the emotions that you go through after building something up like that. That you, you didn't think that was that big a deal, but then they're able to show your life in a way that you could never do. Don was just one of the Pixar team's mini muses for cars. In fact, Fran Hauser, who owned the Midpoint before Brenda, inspired the character of the Wisecrack and Flow. But in terms of story and setting, most recognize Seligman, Arizona, as having provided the basis for the town of Radiator Springs. And like Angel Delgadillo, whom you might remember from our first episode, Lilo Russell has borne witness to many of this community's ebbs and flows. Originally, it was a Santa Fe, a railroad town. So we always had, I would say, 100, 150 railroad people in town that were helping the community survive and thrive. And then the railroad decided not to stop anymore. They now go from Winslow to Needles. So we lost a lot of revenue there. And then when I-40 bypassed, that was probably the awakening of we're in trouble in Seligman. You know, you had all the traffic go to Seligman. They spend money, they stop, they eat, they fill up their cars. And the very next day when they bypassed, there was nothing. Literally nothing. Not a car inside, not a truck. It was, it really was, hey, we need to do something. And we did. We in the chamber, there was 10 of us, you know, talked about what can we do. We came up with the idea, let's get together and get this Route 66. And it worked. Proof this revitalization worked can be found in the fact we're talking in Westside Lilo's. The cafe Miss Russell runs and co-owns with her daughter, who also happens to be named Brenda. Open in 96, it's a cheerful, earth-toned space with tables covered in Mexican tiles. But pulling in the parking lot, you'll notice a German flag. Entering a placard on the door reads Vilkemen. And while they proudly advertise the best half-pound burgers on Route 66, that probably isn't what this place is best known for. What inspired me to open up a restaurant was, first of all, my, my grandma in Germany was a really, really good cook, so was my mom. I'm basically just a good cook. I'm not learned, but I had worked for the post office, and next door, the building that we are in right now, opened up, so it was an opportunity to do what I had in mind to do open up a restaurant, serve good food, and have German food in Seligman, Arizona. That was my goal was, hey people, there's schnitzels and sauerkraut and bratwurst that are darn good. That, I succeeded in that. When you really think about it, Seligman, in the middle of nowhere, small town, who's gonna buy your schnitzel and sauerkraut? The number one thing on my menu a sauerkraut and schnitzel. <laughs> and I do make a special once a week that's totally German. So. About 10 years ago, 
Lilo's cooking and life story caught the attention of a team of German producers who facilitated a homecoming through a reality show. It was called Einmal Wilde Westen und Zurück, which means one time the Wild West and back, which fits the whole subject of myself coming back. So we went to Germany and took over a restaurant, and the owners of that restaurant came to Seligman, Arizona, and took over our restaurant. And the biggest shock was for them to come to Seligman. We were in paradise. We were in Algoy, right outside of Munich. So we were in the perfect place. And they were in Seligman. But we all adjusted, and the television show ended up being a huge success. They had over five million viewers. And the reason I have all these German license plates on the wall is because I mentioned in that show that I like German license plates. So every German that came from Germany brought me a license plate. Born in Wiesbaden in 1941, Miss Russell came to Seligman through her serviceman husband, Patrick, whom she met while he was stationed abroad. You moved to Seligman in 1962. Can you describe for me your first impressions of Seligman when you got here? That was not very good. <laughs> it was, it was kind of, you know, you have things that you think you're going to see. And I flew into Phoenix and we drove up through Flagstaff and I thought, just like Germany, beautiful. Got to Williams, nice, you know. And then I asked my husband why he told me not to bring skis because in Flagstaff they ski. So then we continued on to Ash Fork and I'm like, okay. And in those days, you still, it was Route 66. There was no I-40. So you went to Williams, then you proceeded to go to Ashford, and we got to Seligman, and I'm like, okay, I have to adjust. I come from a big city. But you know, it turned out all well, and I love it here. You know, the biggest, I think the largest one was the shock of how you dress in Germany and how you dress over here. And I was lucky to meet the right people in Seligman that sort of took me under there. And don't dress up like that. You're not in Wiesbaden. You're in Seligman, Arizona. So I think that was probably the largest shocker for me, is to dress still good, but down, you know. Lilo traded in her skirts and heels for blue jeans and flats a long time ago, but still carries herself with a casual elegance. Her hair is neatly cropped, and the day I meet her, she's wearing a silk shirt, textured blazer, and subtle diamond earrings. She also moves with strength and looks far younger than her age, which is something she doesn't hide from. I'm 80 years old. I still work four days a week, you know, so it, I have no regrets. To me, the most important thing is to stay busy and to have a goal. If you get up in the morning, and you don't have a goal, I think that's what makes you old. So I think with me having my goal, enjoying what I'm doing, I come to work about 8.30 in the morning. First thing I do is make the soup of the day. Then I continue on to see what kind of 
pies I need, and I continue to make the pies. I don't know if it makes it special. I just put a lot of love in it. I enjoy making them, and I have a few ingredients that other people don't use. If a diner can be judged on the quality of their pies, Lilo's West Side more than passes any litmus test. And while Miss Russell isn't one for chess beating, at this point her daughter Brenda feels moved to chime in. The pies and the carrot cake are her number one. That's what she just thrives on and how she makes them. You know, it's very secretive how she does it. Mostly the carrot cake. The carrot cake, nobody has a recipe except for my mom and I. And that's it. You know what I mean? And then our cream pies, they're just, I mean, they're known. They're very, very good. You know, my pies are good. And I'm sure other places are just as good or, you know. But, you know, I do have to say that you've gone into other places and you do compare them. And I always go back to my mom's, not just because she's my mom, but it's like you really think, you know, she really takes the time and puts everything into those, you know. The other Brenda, at the midpoint in Adrian, takes great time and care with hers as well. Um, My day starts out about 7.30 in the morning. We open at 8. These ladies are good enough to me. I'm not always here at 8 because I stay here till about 3 o'clock in the morning making pie. Because I, we work through the day. And, some, you know, I'm needed just as much out here during the day as I am at night when I'm making the pie. <laughs> For reasons I don't understand and she can't fully explain, they're called ugly pies on the menu. It's all of my pies. It's just a name for all of my pies. I'm not the one that came up with it. It came from Fran and Dennis, Fran and Dennis both, because Fran's pies were called the ugly crust pies. When Dennis took it over, it was the ugly pies. Okay, and it just has stayed. Well, no matter the name, they look beautiful to me. And after much debate, I try the Elvis, a sinful creation of chocolate, peanut butter, banana, and whipped cream, and regret I don't have company so I could sample the lemon meringue or coconut cream. She got these recipes from her mom and grandmother, and I was told to bring an appetite for them by Amarillo photographer Jim Livingston, who had fine words for Brenda as well. It is like going to your mom's or your sister's. She is one of the sweetest human beings in the universe. Um, you know, she has employed half of the teenagers in Andrian just to, to give them jobs. And, you know, I mean, she, she is genuinely one of the neatest ladies in the universe. She, um, she oftentimes gets a little tongue-tied uh, being, you know, she's, she's great behind the scenes. And she's very humble. I mean, super, super humble. And so it's kind of hard for her to, to get attention. I mean, she'd much rather take care of somebody's uh, boo-boos and, and feed them a bologna sandwich. And, you know, she's like your mom. You know, she's going to take care of you. She's just a wonderful lady. In talking and hearing Brenda tell me of the challenging last two years and hours she keeps without complaint, it's clear she is one to put others first. But I guess, you know, why, why are places like this important for the because, world at Because this is what built the world. <laughs> Can you articulate that? Sure. Mm. <laughs> We're losing them. All the mom and pop places are going down. You know, COVID started it. And why is a mom and pop, what do you get from a mom and pop place like this? Personal, con- uh, personal love. And in, in what ways have you uh, received love here? Oh, all kinds of ways. <laughs> I had, um, 
I have a couple that I love with all my heart. They offered me the money to pay this off. But yet you, uh, you, you said no. Yeah, I said no. <laughs> Yeah, I did because that's a lot of money. <laughs> I couldn't do that. I was like, oh, thank you, but no. <laughs> and, you know, I hate, I hate to ask, but what would, you know, what would it be like to you if you did have to say goodbye to this oh place? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to ride it to the very end. I know that. <laughs> if that would be the case, you'd still, I'd be broke. <laughs> and I'd still have it open. <laughs> There's no Brian Lilo and her daughter away from their cafe either. I'm probably going to run around in here in a wheelchair and drive everybody crazy. My goal is to keep it up. I think Brenda's biggest excitement was that she is now the owner of Westside Lilo's and has to continue my way of working. <laughs> and I will. <laughs> it's a family-owned restaurant, and the family will be totally what it's all about. That's my whole thing about it. It will keep going on and on and on. I want it to keep going. I don't ever want to sell it. I want it to keep going. So my mom can always look down and be so happy of what she did. <laughs> and when I ask what makes this labor worthwhile, all are united in their responses. But I mean, how does this, how is it that this place fuels you? How does it what? How does this place fuel you? I mean, where do you get the fuel to? From the people, man. I love the people. The people are amazing. I love everybody along the route. All my friends along the route, they are amazing. My suppliers are great to me. I mean, I just, I can't help but love everybody. <laughs> it's the return of your customers that really makes this place. And that's the gratification that you get from working hard and making everything good. Well, I think it's the most important because of people. Um, it's, it's a real, you know, everybody's in these viral worlds and living these viral lives. And while it's fun to have the Instagram photos and, it, and it's fun to do the social media part of life, but it's so much more real when you can go out and make real connections. And I think that's why diners are so important. And in a diner like this, you feel part of a community. You know, you feel, you know, our waitresses and our staff are usually real friendly with with people and usually also people will begin talking to each other because it's a diner style place and I think that's what makes it the most important. We Again, we call it the Rock Cafe Magic. Thanks to Lilo Russell, the two Brendas, and Don Welch for taking time out of their busy days to speak with me. I can assure you the Midpoint, Rock Cafe, and Westside Lilo's are all worthy of your patronage, and we'll be including their information in the show notes so you can plan your visits. Just bring your appetites because their food does not disappoint. On a more serious note, I must take a moment to extend heartfelt condolences to Lilo and Brenda, who recently suffered the loss of their beloved husband and father, Patrick. Ladies, please know I've been thinking of y'all. I also thank you for listening. If you like this episode and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krause and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern. 
and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. <laughs>